0: Um, So, thinking about office spaces and greenery, uh, I feel kind of spoiled because uh, Google, that's uh, currently my employer, um, just opened a really nice office, One Maritime Plaza, and uh, the aesthetics are beautiful. I don't know if you've been, but just when you enter One Maritime Plaza, there's like indoor greenery just beautiful green space i took a video call from there and my family was like are you in a rainforest are you out hiking so that's how real it is and these are like live plants so it's really thrilling it's 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 just got uh elevator right now or escalators uh but it's a cool place to hang out just because of the environment they've created so i love it
1: the office We all have a vision of it, whether we're thinking about it in the context of the British sitcom or the place you go to Monday through Friday. Or maybe you're still working at home wearing your favorite blouse and pajama bottoms all day long. No matter what kind of office you call home, what the office means to us is rapidly evolving. Consider this, according to FlexJobs, 65% of those working from home during the pandemic would prefer to stay at home. A survey from ADP notes that two thirds of office workers would look for another job if their current job asked them to return to the office. This makes me curious. If office workers are reluctant to return to their offices en masse, why? What are we getting in our offices? I'm sure we've all experienced overly lit Freezing offices with one coffee maker and a copier which doesn't quite do its job. And yet, there is motion afoot to change all of that, to bring nature, light, inclusion, and accessibility into the offices of today, tomorrow, and beyond. I'm Miriam so Throughout this episode, we'll hear from Mark Levu, a corporate design veteran with over 19 years' experience, about his thoughts, opinions, and ideas about the current state of office design and its future. But first, I wanna dive into how our offices became the way they are with Ryan Anderson, Vice President, Global Research and Insights at Miller Knoll. Ryan works in the area of office design and is an expert on where our offices will take us tomorrow. Ryan Anderson, welcome to Changing Places. I wanna know how we got to the offices of today.
2: Sure, yeah, well, it's been a long journey. I mean, to give you like a quick overview, Offices started late 1800s, they were usually associated with some sort of manufacturing environment, and the rows of desks were basically built on Taylorist principles, it was almost like a factory for paperwork, and it continued to evolve, there was a a brief time after World War II where things got kind of interesting. In a movement known as Bureau Landschaft, which is German for office landscape, there was this idea in Europe, post-war Europe, that maybe the office could become more like a cityscape, you know, a landscape of places where you could move around and have a, a great variety of activities. But that, unfortunately, basically got put on the shelf with the rise of desktop computing. When desktop computers and desktop phones became the dominant technologies for what really was office work it tethered people to very specific locations within the office the furniture essentially became a highway for power and data distribution and a lot of our our assumptions about work even the notion of office work developed during those years that work had to be done in an office you did your individual work in one place assigned to you if you wanted to go work with other people you'd go to a conference room and collaboration was synchronous. It was always happening at the same time. Even how we think about supervisory practices, presenteeism, like if you weren't there, you clearly weren't being productive. We had decades worth of um, ideas about how work is done that developed during those those years. By the way, the work has been changing drastically for the last 20 years, but the assumptions about work remained. And that's why offices essentially have been a pretty consistent thing until very recently.
1: I do want to dig into what we're seeing now in the world of office design from biophilia, the human tendency to connect with other forms of life in nature, also inclusivity and beyond. But we'll be back after this tour of Second Home's Los Angeles office.
3: So this is the main building at Second Home. This building was built in 1964 by the architect Paul Williams for the Assistance League of Southern California. Um, Paul Williams is a really renowned architect, especially here in Los Angeles. He was known as the architect of the stars. He did a lot of private uh, residential projects for celebrities like Lucille Ball, Frank Sinatra. He did a lot of homes in Palm Springs as well. But this was not a residential property, obviously. It was built for a uh, social good company the Assistance League of Southern California. When we got this property we restored the facade of the building. We did rehab the inside of the building. We brought in a lot of natural light and we sort of opened everything up by you know having rooms made out of glass. Upstairs every single office has a window whether it goes into the courtyard or Hmm. to the outside of the building. Also we provide a gigantic roof deck upstairs. Um, We added that roof deck and that looks out into the 6,500 plants that are outside. So these are our indoor offices. They are in the main building. We have 25 of them up here. They're all different shapes and sizes. They kind of connect like a a honeycomb almost. As you can see, there's no curtains. There's glass that goes from the waist up, and then we have carpeting that goes halfway up. That really helps with sound. But even if all the lights went out up here, you'd still have plenty of natural light to work. (laughs)
1: Stay tuned for the next part. And just a reminder, Changing Places is a podcast brought to you by Avis and Young that continues to explore and question our complex relationship with the built world around us. I'm your host, Miriam Sobe. I hope you're liking the show so far. If so, please share Changing Places with your friends. Before we get back to my conversation with Ryan Anderson, let's hear what Mark Leboe thinks about the current state of office design.
4: I think if we think about the current state of the office design, it's changing, and I believe will continue to change and evolve going forward. The pandemic really challenged us, stressed us, tested us, surprised us in different ways. You know, it did all these kind of different things for different people. I believe there's tremendous learnings to be had from studying user behaviors and making relationships in many ways that people perform, conduct themselves, interact, engage, with each other, both in person and virtually. Um, so it's it's a very interesting time uh, as workplace strategists, as designers, as, as you know, kind of educators in the design industry to help understand what that can look like for organizations.
1: Now, let's go back to San Francisco to hear what people think about changes to the office.
3: My ideal workspace would be an open floor plan um, with spaces that you can go for quiet, But generally, a lot of the work happens in collaboration with workers, lots of different types of workers, I guess, because um, it can get mundane or difficult when
0: you only have kind of one perspective. Yes, I do expect, uh, you know, greenery in office spaces because it livens up the, you know, working atmosphere. And back in Mumbai, in our own office, we do have, uh, you know, an absurdly large amount of plants, uh, which really helps... Uh, in, in employee engagement as well as you know, making it a fun workplace and making it a really uh, a place where people would like to work and, and would definitely, let's say, look forward to coming.
1: Back to my conversation with Ryan Anderson, Vice President, Global Research and Insights at Miller Knoll. Ryan, as we come out of the other side of the pandemic and people go back to the office, What kind of designs or changes to the physical space will some workers see or experience in the next year or so?
2: I think we've begun a trajectory that offices are becoming what the employees want them to be versus what their employers necessarily may have thought that they needed to be. Because even for those organizations that still have an office-first culture, they're realizing that the only way to get a good return on their real estate investments is to make sure that these spaces are adding value. And employees are becoming more purposeful about sharing the experiences they expect, but also the qualities they expect. So when it comes to experiences, There's a lot of things that are difficult to achieve while working remotely. Not that people can't be successful fully remote, but if we think about, as an example, being able to interact with your extended networks and see people who you probably don't have a reason to be on a call with, that's an important part of feeling like you're part of something bigger. It's an important part of being able to connect what one team is doing with other teams. So that community socialization, for sure, just just as a means of connectivity, is a high priority. Likewise, higher quality time with immediate teammates, like you can do a lot in a video call or using chat, but if you want to hang out for a few hours, ask stupid questions, get some tacit learning, it requires something more immersive and far less formal than a meeting. So employees are looking for those kind of quality times with their teams. They're also looking, by the way, for places where they can be assured some some ability to focus and concentrate. We've seen 58% of the 26,000 people that have used Herman Miller's work from home tool say they struggle with focused productivity at home. Not always, but there's the dog, kids, delivery people, whatever. And so in terms of the experiences, it's almost like employees want to be able to show up, be social, see some people they haven't seen, spend some quality time with their team, and then get away from everyone for a few hours if they've got that spreadsheet that they need to focus on for for half a day. None of this, by the way, is served well by just a sea of desks and conference rooms. We need different types of spaces to support these. But there's also, I think, a shift in the qualities they're looking for. You mentioned biophilic design a while back. Biophilia is really the ways that indoor environments can mimic, or in some cases, at least, you know, kind of connect to our outdoor habitats. And it speaks to a desire for people to go into spaces that feel healthier, that have a higher degree of comfort, not just physical comfort, but emotional, cognitive. And so I also think that, by the way, during the pandemic, the outdoors was one of the only safe space for a lot of people. And so now coming into an office that seems brighter, that seems like there's more greenery, that they're assured to have higher quality indoor air um, is really appealing, as is any sort of move towards creating more inclusive environments, which is a a big and kind of complicated topic. But there are ways of designing space so that you don't see your typical user as typical. You begin to take a look at the breadth of, of needs and create spaces that, whether it's really clear or whether it's more intuitive, the employees know is designed more for them, like the space exists to serve them rather than a place where they're just expected to show up. So Some some really serious evolution taking place right now, which I couldn't be more enthused about, because even for those organizations that might want to shrink up their portfolio a little bit or do some different things, if the environment served the employees well, it's a win win for everyone.
1: You mentioned biophilia, bringing nature into the office. It seems to be kind of a trend that uh, we're seeing. A second home in Lisbon, London, and Los Angeles makes it a driving part of their office design. Do you think this is a trend that's here to stay or something only a few landlords or owners will take time to really invest in?
2: I think it's something that we'll see grow in the future. And I should note that there's a couple different approaches to biophilic design. But if we are talking about qualities like better lighting, better air quality, larger amounts of greenery, then, yeah, I think that's been happening. And you do see this blurring of the outdoors and indoors in really wonderful ways. I should also note that I think we'll see more outdoor work. There's no reason why people can't spend a really meaningful part of their workday on an outdoor terrace that has comfortable furniture and Wi-Fi and, and breathe fresh air. The one thing I might add in in thinking about your question is that I think a lot of building managers, facility managers, property owners learned in the pandemic that because COVID was primarily spread through shared air rather than shared surfaces, you know, they pivoted from lots of disinfectants and Purell to can we measure the CO2 levels in our space? Do we have good air filtration? Do we have good air exchange? That set the whole topic of healthy buildings kind of on fire in a good way. And I think it's something that hopefully we'll continue to talk about for years to come and not just associated with a public health crisis.
1: Speaking of biophilia, here's our tour of Second Home's Los Angeles office. A
5: key element of all of our design is biophilia Mm -hmm. um, and You know, the the idea behind that is that we as humans are, we evolved in nature and our connection to nature is inherent to our productivity and our creativity. And so, you know, we design all of our spaces to kind of weave nature into the workspace because we believe that that's where people are able to be their most comfortable, their most creative, solve problems. And so that's that's a huge part of all of our designs everywhere you go. And in London, our designs are, you know, we bring the nature inside. In L.A., we were fortunate enough to be in a climate where we're able to bring the office outdoors. Um, and so this is kind of this campus is the first of its kind for us where we have such an extensive uh, outdoor footprint.
1: If we think about inclusion within office design moving forward, Ryan, what does that mean and look like to an employee? Is it just private offices or private phone booths? Is it bigger than that?
2: Yeah, it's bigger than that. Inclusive design at its core says we're not going to focus on any particular user group. We're going to try to understand the breadth of these users as broadly as possible. And then when we go to design a space, we're going to kind of beat up the design to say, does it really work for everyone? And this could be true of a lobby, a conference room, a workstation, just just about anywhere. I will tell you that we... Have been exploring for oh at least nine or ten years now, a pretty broad range of user groups. As an example, we we did a webinar here just last year on the needs of women in menopausal age. The the Ministry of Labor in the UK, as an example, has taken a strong interest in understanding the challenges that women in menopause face in the workplace. It's not just thermal discomfort, it's brain fog, et cetera. And there's mounting data to show that women in their prime of their career are leaving the workforce. So the temptation here is to then focus on one group, but the ideal is to say, no, let's look at this group's needs relative to everyone else. Let's say that we wanted to have a quiet contemplative space somewhere on the floor of an office building. If we think about the design of it for somebody who is on the neurodiversion spectrum, great, we can serve her or him. If we think about that woman of mes- menopausal age, we can we can help her. If we think about a person of color who may be dealing with code switching or microaggressions, we're going to provide a respite for that person. Or maybe it's just somebody with an anxiety disorder or somebody who's having a lousy day. The goal is, if you're going to design a room like that, look at the broadest array of needs possible. Maybe you'd say, hey, if we add a lock and we add a fridge, now that room becomes a great place for a new mom who's nursing. The more we do that, the more the employees will ultimately realize that this space has been informed by their needs, and if we really push the boundaries of it, the design process should be participative. We should be engaging employee resource groups. We should be engaging a broad array of users to say, tell us any real or perceived reasons why you might not want to work here or feel comfortable working here. The more we tackle those, the more inclusive we can get.
3: The idea of putting in uh, more accommodation for personal needs in an office, I think is Probably more valuable, uh, certainly it, it's kind of sad in a way because it just demonstrates how much work intrudes on your personal life and takes away from the things that are really important to you, whether it's your family or your pursuit of spirituality or whatever. When I, th- when I think of uh, inclusive spaces, I think it's a great thing. Um, like there's a lactation room at my school. And there's like a gender-neutral bathroom and things like that. I think it's ideal,
4: honestly.
0: We are in the journey to an inclusive workplace. Things are moving in the right step, and people are nowadays more demanding from their workplaces. And and I think that that's the that's the whole crux of it. Right? Once you start demanding better things, obviously things start to get better, right?
1: Who's driving these changes, though? I mean, you mentioned that designing spaces so people can feel included. Is this coming from the C-suite making these decisions? Is it employees who are pushing for change, investors?
2: A great question. The the topic of workplace design has continued to skyrocket up the org chart the last couple years. In fact, if you would have asked me probably in 2018, what does the future workplace look like? A lot of what we're talking about, I would have said was going to happen, but at a slower time scale. what I didn't see coming was the massive influx of senior human resource leaders and CEOs in conversation about workplace. It, it started... I think probably in late 2020 or early 2021 around return to office conversations, only to have senior leaders start asking better questions around, well, what is the role of the space? If people can be productive from home part of the time, why do we have office spaces? What's the return on those investments? I remember a senior facilities person calling me last year and saying, hey, my head of HR just said, how does our office help promote employee engagement? what should I say? And so we talked through some, some good information that was out there. I also think that landlords and developers are beginning to think differently. There's been such a rush on premium space, which surprises some people, but it's more like the, the world has decided that there's no point in having a mediocre office now. Like, do, If you're going to do it, do it right. And so I think across the board, business leaders are thinking about how to create more human-centric, higher value spaces. And like I said, that's a good thing. That's long overdue.
3: The military is certainly trending towards making more inclusive spaces. However, uh, making changes is a very long process and will take a considerable amount of time before we actually see the end result. Yeah.
1: Ryan, as we look ahead to the next five years or so, I wonder what the office design of tomorrow will look like. Let's consider that after we hear Mark LeBou's insights into the future of thoughtfully designed workplaces.
4: The focus of thoughtfully designed workspaces and flexibility, I think, are really going to be key going forward. And the balance of privacy and collaborative is an important and ever-evolving one to solve. And I don't think anyone truly has the answer. Um, but it's this constant register that, as strategists, we keep very close to understanding. There are so many elements that need to be considered for these environment types and how they you know interact with each other from the location that they may be in an office. Their proximity to access points, perhaps even circulation paths, um, the directions in which people face, what are the heights and partitions to shield that support that privacy? Uh, What are the acoustics around them? Are there you know HVAC systems that are perhaps you know inhibiting or prohibiting you know the ways in which they can conduct themselves? So there's all these kind of elements that we we try to study and understand what is the best avenue to support. Those key spaces for its intended reasons. We know as strategists, you know, kind of the many options that are in the market for things like privacy phone booth enclosures, both single and multi user occupancy. And they really have come a long way from their inception of being effective, stylish, comfortable, you know, solution offerings that provide just that privacy where and as needed within a very efficient, small footprint for people to make personal phone calls, take professional phone calls, don't need to take up you know, a large conference room if, if the occupants are low. I think in support of the conversation around inclusion, office designs that bring people together is really key. Whether it's open communal areas for collaboration, casual gatherings or enclosed spaces for virtual connectivity and remote team members, is really important that we really need to you know, provide our, our customers and our clients. With this.
1: If we look ahead, let's say the next five years, where do you think we will be in the world of office design? Do you see a positive trajectory?
2: Well, I'm shamelessly optimistic. So, yes. I, I wasn't personally, and I, I think I can speak for most of my team, I don't know that we were super thrilled with the state of the office in 2015 through 2019, as an example. Interestingly, we started to observe and and just kind of keep track of what was happening with remote-first companies maybe back in 2013, 2014. I was surprised and delighted to find that many of the organizations celebrating their ability to be remote not only had office spaces, they had amazing office spaces because they were unconstrained with any of the old assumptions. If you look at the office occupancy rates happening across North America. In, in the U.S., the highest uh, office occupancy is in Austin, Texas at about 60% of pre-pandemic levels. I think that the quality and, and degree of value that a space offers as employees is just as important. I think we'll see people sharing that the spaces that they've been given are more at their service and and their places where they want to be. So at this point, the big question is how quickly can organizations transition from old assumptions? to thinking about their employees as consumers, thinking about their space as a product that needs to meet a certain type of demand and that needs to change over time. But long-term, I'm feeling good. The next few years might be a little rocky.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I wanna thank you so much for joining us, Ryan. It's been a pleasure.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: And finally, Mark LeBou.
4: I think the evolution of office design, in my opinion, will be centered around three things, flexibility, mobility, and adjustability. And this is di- directed to work settings, furniture types, its arrangements, their ability to be adjusted, reconfigured, modified, What you know, kind of whatever the, the need might be. As needs change, as user experience and their needs change, you know, how... How agile is it? How could that be flipped around for different users, you know, throughout the course of a day and a week, et cetera? What what tools and equipment need to be provided so that it becomes agile and and flexible? Because then that starts to translate into how much square footage an organization needs to carry on their lease term. So certainly spaces that are designed to create the feeling of wellness, you know, indicative of supporting productivity, innovation, employee satisfaction are really, really important.
1: I don't know about you, but I really hope we begin to reconceptualize office design beyond a cubicle to something that really makes the office somewhere you want to be. I can't speak for you, but finally getting rid of fluorescent lights, having a room just to escape and focus, and bringing nature into a space which, at times, can feel stark and soulless, sounds like a vast improvement to me. I'm Miriam Sobe. This is Changing Places. On our next episode, we're taking a deep dive into one of the newest concepts to hit cities since the freeway, the 15-minute city. As Paris makes plans to become a 15-minute city, we'll look at how cities from Bristol to Los Angeles are embracing a new groundbreaking future. When will all of your needs be met within a 15-minute walk or cycle ride? Maybe sooner than you think. Changing Places is brought to you by Avis and Young. Our producer is Andrew Pemberton Fowler. Our sound engineer is Patrick Emile. Our producer assistant is Hugh Perkich. Additional production support is provided by JAR Audio.